Good morning, everybody. A lot of you are probably at home joining us live in real time. And I just want to say, if you're at home in the living room or the bedroom, I just want to say, as your pastor, I hope you're wearing clothes. Please have some dignity and some respect. Our mission uh, at Fondren Church, many of you know, it flows from a, a beautiful passage of Scripture, Galatians 5, 6b. It tells the early church and tells our church in particular in these times that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And I want you to know my heart and our heart as leadership at Fondren Church, it's out of love that we make this decision to cancel church on campus today and move it uh, online. This is a decision not uh, to be fearful, but a decision to be responsible. It is out of love that this is done. And so we're just glad that you're joining us. And today I want to give you a charge, a few things that we are asking for you during these days. And as um, your pastor, I want to comfort you in these times with scripture. We'll have a message in a moment. I just want to have some opening remarks uh, that I think are important that I've thought about and have written down for, for our church family. Over these next few weeks, uh, while most of the engagement of uh, the family of God here at Fonder. Most of it will be online. We still want to ask you as a church family to remain active and engaged with one another. I spent uh, the week in the Dominican Republic uh, in, in the mountainous area of Polo with the Hispaniola Mountain Ministry. Uh, we went with our college group of Fondren Church and were there for a week. It was a week ago today that, that I was flying out and just got back a day and a half ago. And being out of the country, uh, kept me out of the loop a little bit. We weren't getting the news like most of you were, and it was somewhat surprising to, to get it in droplets over there, but to get back and to see on the bottom of the CNN screen in an airport that America is shutting down. A little bit alarming. We're all walking in unprecedented times. There is fear that is abounding, and we're learning new languages. We're learning about uh, social distancing, which seems really odd if you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus never advocated for social distancing. In fact, he said that he had a plan to love and bless and heal the world. And it was a plan to be with, to be with God, to be with each other. In fact, to be in close proximity uh, to one another. Uh, some of you have uh, your love language is the gift of touch. It's hard to think about distancing yourself and sitting six feet apart. We're, we're learning new things about flattening the curve and we're learning uh, what a pandemic actually is, how it's actually Actually defined. These are new times. So I want to give us a challenge uh, this morning as a faith family that I think will help us. What you can do, I want to give you four things and would love for you to make a notation of these to internalize them and see how you can walk these out. The first thing you can do, uh, let me ask you to guess. What, what do you think I'm going to say as a pastor, as your pastor? Any guesses? What's the first thing? I've got four this morning. What's the first thing? If you're with a family member, if you're with a roommate or someone in your group, would you uh, just out loud now guess what's the first thing the pastor is going to challenge us to do in these days? Any guesses? Here it is. Pray. You know I'm going to start there, right? In fact, specifically, I want to ask you to do this. Pray that God will work even in these times of uncertainty. One more time. Pray that God will work even in these times of uncertainty. Another question for you this morning. What, what does uncertain, uncertainty do for you? How do you greet it when life becomes unknowable and uncontrollable? What's your natural default mode? My son, my oldest son, he's 21 years old. He was with us and with our college group in the Dominican Republic. And where we stayed, we um, know that there are tarantulas and spiders, and sometimes they come out. And one of the members of our group said, oh, no, it's not tarantula season. And I had been there before, and I just kind of smiled and thought, I think year-round is tarantula season. And sure enough, toward the end of our time, we saw one of those big spiders in our house. And uh, RJ, my oldest son in particular, for him, that created some uncertainty of would he have any, any partners in bed, any, any big tarantulas, could they cross? All up in his bed. There's uncertainty there when you see something that, that shakes you. We're all experiencing it in different ways because we have different temperaments and styles and personalities. My own daughter came into Susan and I's bedroom just last night and she, one of her 
elements of fear and uncertainty is that she may not be able to go this summer in July to Nashville and see the Harry Styles concert. And tears welled up in her eyes as she faces that looming specter of this thing that I, I paid money for, I saved money for, I babysat to save money to go to Nashville to see Harry Styles in concert in July. That may not happen. And it makes her sad to think about that. There is uncertainty around us and we deal with it in different ways. If you have a notepad and a pen, you may want to jot this down or you have notation on your phone. Consider what Jesus said in Luke 21. In Luke 21, Jesus said this very phrase that there will be times of uncertainty. He said that there will be fearful events. In Luke 21, 11, Jesus's words, there will be fearful events. Now, in that context, that time and that day, Jesus was talking about earthquakes and pestilence and famine and war. Um, he was talking about persecution, that they would go before kings and governors and face difficulty that involved being persecuted. There will be, he said, fearful events. Listen, church, I believe that God was not surprised by what surprised us. So the answer when, we, when things are uncertain, the answer when we do not know, when life looks uncontrollable and unknowable, he calls us in the uncertain times to pray. Pray that God will work. Pray that he will. Colossians 4, 2, just a few weeks ago, we looked at this from this very stage in this very building. It says to continue in prayer being watchful. Last night, I drove to Natchez to do wedding for a young couple in our church and at the last minute I was reminded that I was to lead the, the people there in the Lord's Prayer and I thought I've got this down I think I know the Lord's Prayer I'm a pastor I've been at this a while but as I was saying the prayer and leading them on a stage with a microphone and leading the crowd I got to that part or I was getting to that part about you know where I'm going right where forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses and I knew the couple had chosen a word that they wanted me to say I just wasn't sure which one it was and when I got to that part Lord I said trespasses and whew, I got it right I let us right I didn't disappoint the people or, or the couple or confuse the crowd but listen sometimes we think prayer is that way it's the right words it's not disappointing people it's accuracy in the word usage but prayer is our heart prayer is simply you've heard me say this prayer is simply talking with God and I hope that you will pray and you will pray out loud you will pray to him you will ask him to extend his arm Isaiah 59 1 says that God in his power and sovereignty is his arm is not too short to save his ear is not too dull to hear church family let's pray let us pray together and let's ask God I want to be real clear this is my heart I want us to pray that God would end this that he would save lives. Let's pray for those who are most vulnerable in our state, in our community, around the world where people don't have what we have, access to quality medical help. Let's pray that God would spare people, that he would save lives. Let's pray that he would end this. Pray also for what's being stirred up in you. What are your fears? It could be economic uncertainty. It could be relational angst. There's challenges. There's great challenges. Let's call out to him and let's pray to him. We'll have an opportunity after the message today to do that very thing. I'll lead us in some guided prayer. The second thing that I want to ask of you as a church family is to engage online with us. To engage online with our church family. Kind of cool today we were scheduled we were slated to baptize a friend of mine named Vince Vince is in his early 60s and I had to text with him uh, from out of the country to let him know the decision that lo it looked like we were going to make and I offered Vince the opportunity hey we can baptize you today Facebook live if you want to if he, I don't like people to put off their baptism I didn't want Vince to God's doing work in his life and he's got a really cool story and Vince prayed about it thought about it text me back and said I want to wait to when we have church on campus so that my small group can be with me to share. They can be with me to celebrate this experience. I, I love that. I love that, that 
that we're growing in community, that people are getting out of rows and into circles. And since we're not going to be in rows, perhaps for a few weeks, we don't know yet, but since we're not going to be in rows for a few weeks, it's important for us to engage online. Now today, we don't have songs as we normally do, but in all likelihood, we will do that next Sunday. And at this last a few weeks, Church Online, we are readying ourselves to be able to do that in a good way. And so be prepared uh, next Sunday. If we do church online, we'll have songs. And so think about where you'll be and how you can worship with us to lift up God in song. I'm t- thankful for the talented group of people that we have for Lauren and our musicians and production team and all. So be looking forward to that next week. If we're doing the same thing, we'll include that in our time. The third thing that I want to ask for you beyond prayer that God would work in these times and engaging online with our church family, it's that you would be a blessing, that you would be a blessing by continuing your giving online. I ask our finance team uh, to tell me the, the percentage of giving, how many people give online and how many people give right here when the baskets are passed. Um, 40% of our church, 40% of you give online and 60% give when you come to the building. You can imagine that that's a concern for our church. You can imagine that it's important for me, it's incumbent upon me as our leader to talk about that, to let you all know that this could have a tremendous and even dire impact on the life of our church. Tremendously important season as we continue to give 20% outside of these church walls to fund dedicated, deserving mission partners, taking the gospel throughout the world, fighting, human trafficking and fatherlessness, poverty, tackling big world problems in the name of Christ and sharing the gospel. We invest so much outside of this church. We have a staff team that invests in the lives of people that make this thing run and go and bless so many lives. And so it's important for us as in this time and me as your pastor to let you know that we could take a really tremendous hit in this. And so we wanna ask you, to be a blessing by continuing your giving online. Jesus said something that resonates in so many people's hearts today. It certainly does mine. He said it's more blessed, we are more blessed to give than to receive. Now you can't convince a kid of that on Christmas morning, but you don't wanna be an adult acting like a kid on Christmas morning, thinking that life is about you, about you gaining and opening things and hoarding things and consuming things about your acquisition. Jesus said that you and I, and it's so true that we're gonna be more happy when we learn to be givers. I hope you'll join us. I say this often, but I hope you'll join us on this journey of generosity. You can go online. We're making it easier than we've ever made it. You can go online and give in these times when we can't come to our campus uh, for a large gathering. You could come by the church. You could mail your gift in. If you've never stepped in, if you've never stepped up on the ladder to become a first-time giver, I would hope that you would consider that. What a great time. Leaders are always careful not to use exaggeration or hyperbole. I think of the show The Bachelor. Chris Rose, doesn't he always say, stay tuned for the most shocking episode of The Bachelor ever? I don't want to be that kind of guy as your pastor, but I do want to say, I'm careful with these words. I think this is the most important season in the eight and a half year history of our church when it comes to us participating as givers. Every gift is needed in this time. I also believe that everybody needs to give. I pray that you'll know that as you walk in the blessing of that. The last thing that I want to say, ask of you, the fourth thing, is that you would extend care to at least one other person this week who's experiencing isolation or fear. I heard a conversation that I couldn't believe. I heard someone say something in jest yesterday at a local restaurant. Someone said something about the elderly, how they're the most vulnerable. And it was a dismissive, sarcastic comment. Someone said, well, when someone's 70, they've already lived their life. But think about it, if you're 70, the average lifespan for a lot of 70-year-olds is 85. That's 15 more years. If you have a grandchild, that you, there's a big difference in watching that grandchild at 10 and at 25. People matter. All people matter. And there are vulnerable among us. Think in particular about someone you know that's older. Think about someone you know that's isolated. Think about someone you know that's going through a particular fear. 
in this time. And here's an assignment. In fact, now or in just a moment, think of that one person. Think of the one person that you can extend care to and you can be the presence of God through your love and care. This time in the life of our church, we have just um, last week entered into just a three-week, it's a short sermon series called Left to Our Own Devices. Small, small bit of irony that, that, by the way, this sermon series was planned months ago, but just a small bit of irony that this sermon series entitled Left to Our Own Devices is a sermon, or three sermons, uh, two more sermons that could only be viewed on devices or screens. Just a small bit of irony there. We had scheduled for Nick to preach last week. He did that and did a great job. And we have scheduled this week Daniel Wagner. As senior pastor, I thought, hey, this is a time when I need to, to take the whole time to preach a particular sermon, an extended sermon for us. But the better part of wisdom is for us to hear from Daniel this morning. Five years ago, this month, we were talking to Daniel about coming to be a part as he was graduating from college. Uh, we knew him to be a young guy, to be a sharp guy. He's had really unique experience serving in an outstanding local church, a proven young man, and we were talking to him about becoming our student pastor. Daniel, most of you know, with his wife Carly, have served our church so faithfully for almost exactly five years now. This past year, he transitioned to fully work with college students and young adults, and I can tell you from experience, those folks love Daniel. I do too. Daniel is a young man, a young minister, and he ministers to, again, our college students and young adults. And so I believe as he is of his age, ministering to the people that age, as he is an avid reader and a curious learner, I believe Daniel is uniquely qualified today to speak into the life of our church of this, this second sermon in this series, Left to Your Own Devices. Today, Daniel is going to talk about our devices, our screens, social media, and technology, and how specifically it creates insecurity in us. This is going to be a good message, and so we are going to welcome Daniel Wagner for Sermon 2, Left to Our Own Devices. Good morning, Fondren Church. It's really a joy and a pleasure for me to be with you wherever you are, in a living room, in a bedroom, uh, in a car on the way back from somewhere or in a car on the way to somewhere. Uh, it's really an honor for me to be here with you today in a stranger environment than what we usually do. Like Robert said, it's no small irony that this is a series called Left to Your Own Devices. And these devices are what connects us together today. I'm so thankful for those words from Robert before, uh, both the compliments about me, which I'm selfishly very thankful for publicly, and uh, for comforting words in the middle of such a strange time in the life of our nation, so many of our lives, and the life of this local church. I pray that you would take those four things to heart and that we would be marked as a people who are courageous in the face of fear, as the people of Jesus has, have been for all of time. Uh, to get started, I'm going to echo what Robert said. This week, I was in the Dominican Republic leading a team. We had 13 college students and uh, three adults. We were there 
to serve alongside with Chris and Jordan Mixon. Chris and Jordan were members of Fonner Church for a long time. They were very faithful here and now. They serve with Hispaniola Mountain Ministries in uh, the Dominican Republic in Polo, a small sort of coffee village uh, in the southern part of the Dominican Republic. It was really a joy to be with them, and uh, we were out of the loop very much, but we're so grateful for the uh, the beauty of devices, the beauty of the internet, the beauty of our screens that allowed us to feel like we were in part here while being somewhere else. Now, uh, I'm thankful if you would be patient with me today. This is a weird format, uh, confident in the word that I have for you as someone that uh, researchers, sociologists would call a digital native. I've grown up uh, the vast majority of my life being connected to the internet. Uh, I have a very slim memory of dial-up and landlines, but it's been mostly iPhone for me. So uh, while you guys have been so gracious with me to let me stand on pastoral authority and the Word of God, I think that I am uniquely suited to give you guys a word uh, about the way that our phones, our devices, the internet, our TV screens affect us, uh, because I've seen it in so many people, hour after hour of the pastoral counseling that I do, the friendships that I have with so many of you in this church. We're plagued by these things, but it's no small irony uh, that they are both a blessing and a curse, like all things. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis that really frames this well for me when I think about uh, screens, devices, TV, internet. If a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be evil. Now, C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, and in context, it's about human freedom and what God allows us to do. But this principle is so true when we think about devices, when we think about the things that bless us uh, as we access information. Nick Crawford put so well last week, we used to go to the library, but now we carry an entire library around with us in our pockets. It's crazy to think that, like I just said, we were able to know what was going on in a country that was some 1,500 miles away. So fine, my friends told me it was uh, some 1,500 miles away from Jackson. We were able to know that uh, the coronavirus was encroaching. And while you were busy buying 200 rolls of toilet paper, we were ministering to people who were wiping it with who knows what. But we were uh, encouraged and informed with the way that this church was making decisions these devices can be so good, but they can also be so evil, right? There are outright evil things like the way that pornography addicts and enslaves so many, the way that human trafficking now is uh, able to be continued and really propitiated. Uh, it's carried on by the internet, the internet and uh, smartphones. It's crazy to think that something that can be uh, so informative for us can also be such a curse. Things that can give us joy can also be the very things that take joy away. And it's a fine line where we have to be Christians who are not anti-device, anti-screens. We don't want to become uh, Christian monks, technological monks. We don't want to uh, seclude ourselves, withdraw from the world, become reclusive. But we need to be good stewards. We need to be conscious of the things that we interact with uh, when we spend time in front of screens. Now, today I'm talking about how our devices can create insecurity. And I don't have to tell you that your phone can be bad. Actually, that's not what I want to tell you. I don't want to tell you your phone's bad, TV's bad, turn those things off. Like I said, those things have tremendous opportunity for good. But when we engage with these things, this spirit of insecurity can creep in. And I know that each one of you has experienced this. Whether you're addicted to your iPhone and you would put yourself in that category, or whether you're somebody like me who's instituted a pretty rigorous screen time recently. I actually just got a screen time notification as Robert was transitioning off and I was transitioning on to see how much I've used my devices this week. And uh, I've used my things for an hour, uh, sorry, an average of three and a half hours a day, which is crazy to think about, right? That's so much time on a screen. That's so much time engaged in a device. But are we doing those things in a way that's wise and beneficial? That's for you to think, and I hope that I'd encourage you today to take a deep, introspective look at your life, to take a look in the mirror and see how these devices may be creating in you, as they are creating in me, a spirit of insecurity that the Lord does not want for us. And when I think about insecurity and I think about devices, uh, the idea that's so uh, prominent in my mind, the thing that I think of 
First is FOMO. Now, FOMO is an acronym you're probably all familiar with. You probably have all experienced a little bit of FOMO yourself. Uh, you wish you were invited to something that you weren't. You see somebody's on a great vacation that you didn't get cut in on. Uh, to live a human life is to be hurt. Uh, as things have an opportunity for good, they also have an opportunity for evil. So we know that uh, you can't be everywhere all the time, but these devices give us this concept that we can multiply ourselves that we can be in more than one place at once, as you can be sort of present in one place and sort of present in another place. It creates a weird spirit in us where this FOMO, this fear of missing out is heightened. And FOMO uh, is so prevalent, it was even put in the new Oxford English Dictionary a few years ago, and it's defined as this. Uh, it's a uh, fear of missing out, anxiety that has an exciting or interesting event that may be happening elsewhere, often aroused by posts seen on a social media website. So we see that FOMO and devices are integrated so much that the dictionary would say in its definition, fear of missing out often caused by seeing posts, what other people are doing on social media websites. It's crazy to think, right, that as we subject ourselves to being a participant in what's so encouraging, so blessing, so informative often in our devices, uh, we see that we open up a spirit of insecurity in our own lives. Now, when I think about FOMO, uh, it is an attack from the enemy. Satan would love to give you the idea that you are missing out on something. As a matter of fact, I'd like to suggest to you today that FOMO was Satan's original plan to create insecurity. FOMO was Satan's original plan to create insecurity. From day one, Satan has been plaguing God's people by saying, what you have is not good enough. You should be somewhere else. Now, this is a very biblical idea found very early in scripture. Genesis 3 says this, for God knows that when you eat of it, this is Eve, Adam and Eve in the garden, looking at the tree that was the knowledge of good and evil and the fruit that was on it. He says, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then it continues in verse six and it says, so when the woman, that's Eve, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was of delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So what do we see here? We see Satan saying, hey, God said in this perfect place that there's one thing you can't do. And we're wired as people, you know this, to pull the lever that says, uh, do not pull it, to push the button that says, do not push. We want to do what we know we should not do, what we're not allowed to do. That spirit is deep inside man, and that's what leads us often to sin and temptation and despair. Satan knew that about Adam and Eve. So he led them to this place where they said, uh, wow, God is withholding this good thing from me. I want everything all at once. These boundaries that I have, this location that I'm in, this creaturehood that God has submitted to me, that's not good enough for me. So Adam and Eve with one bite did what we all want to do. They escaped their own creaturehood. They wanted to be like the creator. They wanted to have all things at once. They wanted the one thing that they were not allowed to have. And as our spiritual parents, our biological great, 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 great somethings, that spirit is alive in us as much as it was in Adam and Eve. And we are people plagued with FOMO that makes us feel so desperately insecure. Satan knows that, and he wants to use that to create in us uh, two things that are not uh, good for our growth in Jesus Christ. FOMO can create these two things, discontentment and depression. And we'll look at these things one by one. FOMO can create two things, discontentment and depression. Now, discontentment is the first that we'll take a look at. Now, uh, you and me, it's a tough human life that we live. There are seasons where we're bound to be discontent, seasons where the ordinary life 
creeps in and we wish that things were different than the way that they are, but we know that God calls us to live a quiet life and to work hard with our hands. So much of faithfulness can feel mundane. Satan would like for us to believe that there are better things out there for us and that we should get on our horse and work on our own strength to go out and get those things. Now, a couple of great works on discontentment and on making choices. Uh, One that I'll reference here is a guy named Barry Schwartz who wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And in this book, he kind of proposed that this concept of loss aversion Loss aversion is this thing that creates in us a spirit of insecurity and a spirit of FOMO. Now, he did this really great experiment that I thought captured the human spirit very well. This experiment was uh, that people went to buy a car, and when they went to the salesman in the car, the salesman showed them the premium version of the car, the high-end, nicest, all the bells and whistles. Man, it was basically a spaceship It had a backup camera and a front camera and a weird thing where you can see over the top of your car from every angle, like they send a little drone above your vehicle. Uh, We drove rental cars to New Orleans uh, to fly out there on a cheaper airline because it's college students. So we were, uh, they believe they're very poor. Some of them actually are. So we took a cheaper flight out of an airport, but we took rental cars. And uh, one of the rental cars that we took on the way back was just like that. It had the little drone thing on it. It had backup camera. It told me when people were getting my lanes, wild. So they took that version of a car, tried to sell it to people at a premium price. And when people said, hey, this is my price range, the salesman slowly started taking things away from the car. So if they didn't have enough money, uh, the leather seats became cloth. The backup camera became no camera. The uh, mirror alerts, the side alerts, those things went away. They did the same experiment a different way where they offered the base model of a car to people. The base model and then slowly added the bells and whistles as people had an allotted amount to spend. And they found this, that the people who were given the premium option and then had things taken away, that they spent more money and that they were less satisfied with the end product than the people who started with the base model and then added to it. It's this idea that psychologically we are affected twice as much by losses than we are by gains. You've probably experienced this in your own life. You uh, might have a great day where you end up getting, uh, man, maybe even a raise or a promotion. But then if you go home and you find out that your hot water heater's broken or that your dog ran away, that's probably going to ruin the good thing for you. That's the way that we're wired psychologically. And God is the God of science. He is the God of psychology. So I want to bring this to you today, something that you probably know, that this loss aversion is so impactful on us. That because we're people who want to only gain, we only want things to go up and to the right for us, that we uh, shelter ourselves and we carry this spirit, this disposition with us uh, to stay away from taking risks when Jesus calls us to be people who take bold risks. But that because we're so loss averse, We're affected deeply whenever we see so much on TV, so much on the internet, so much on social media that we don't have. We feel like we're losing out. We feel like we're missing out as people whenever we don't have things that other people have. We want to aspire to those things. We think that we deserve those things, that we're entitled to those things. And we see this, that uh, really whenever we subject ourselves to so much screen, so much social media, so much internet, that the more choices we have, the less happy we are with what we end up choosing. The more choices we have, the less happy we are with what we choose. And you've seen that play out in your own life. You know, you say that you want to buy a car and all of a sudden you become an expert on all-wheel drive, front-wheel drive, (laughs) rear wheel drive, you need new tires, and you end up researching all tires. You know what snow tires are good for and what all-terrain tires are good for. You want to go on vacation, and now's not necessarily the best time. There are cheap flights apparently all around the world, though. But regardless, uh, 
you say you want to go on vacation and you become an expert on all the nuances of Disney World. You know how to give yourself the VIP tour because you've gone so deep into those things. And what happens in that, because we have so much information, uh, we set ourselves up in a way to where we're so full of regret for the choices that we didn't make. We think that we might have gone wrong somewhere. And that's the way that Satan would love to wire us is that we want so much, we see so much, we think we deserve so much that we end up being resentful towards God. That we secretly in our heart of hearts hate God because he hasn't given us the thing that we want. Even though we can trust in Matthew 6 that uh, Jesus says, which of you who's an earthly parent, when your son would ask for a fish, who would give him a snake? If your son asked for a loaf of bread, who would give him a rock? If you who are fallen people, broken humans, if you know how to give your children good gifts, then won't God give you good gifts as well? We know that in our heart of hearts, but we still resent God. We grow discontent with the things that we have and the things that we don't have. Now, when I think about discontentment, I think about the 10th commandment, which is a commandment to not covet. So uh, let's take a look at that in Exodus 20. This command to not covet uh, seems archaic, seems outdated, but here's what we see. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, we read this in 2020 and think, hey, it's been a long time since I've looked at my neighbor and said, I like that donkey. That's a nice donkey. That's not the way that we covet. We covet new things. But when we see this uh, donkey and this ox, that's really about tools that people have. It's about uh, what those people would use for work and transportation in that day. So it's about the job that someone has, if you covet that. It's about the vehicle that someone has, if you would covet that. The servants are like access and services that we have. So if you would covet someone's maid or cleaning service, you would covet someone's nanny, someone's curbside delivery of their groceries. If you covet someone's spouse, that's pretty straightforward. It's to want someone that you don't have. It's to look at someone's perfect family online, perfect family online, and say, wow, my life would be so much better if I was with this person and not this person. And that's the game that Satan wants us to play, to see the good gifts that God's given us and say, man, if only I had this, then everything would be perfect. Everything would be perfect. Discontentment, and the second is depression that Satan would love for us to feel. Now, depression is clinical. I've been up here and I've you know, preached around depression before, preached on depression before. When we were writing blog posts uh, on founderchurch.com, I wrote a blog post about depression that several of you uh, said that you enjoyed. I was grateful for that. But it's such a struggle for people, clinical depression. But we all inside of us have a depression uh, tendencies, depressive personalities, depressive places that we can go. While it might not be outright depression, uh, in a clinical sense, Satan would love for us to feel depressed because of the things that we see online that we don't have. So he says this, uh, we find this um, so often in our life that if we just had this, we would be better. And when we can't find those things, when we don't have those things, we sink into a place of loneliness, lowlessness, lo right, sorry, lowliness uh, and depression. Uh, this is what I want to put up. There was a study in 2018 that was done at the University of Pennsylvania uh, that found that time spent on screen activities, so that's everything, right? Anything related to a screen. Screen activities was significantly correlated with depressive symptoms, and it would even put you at risk for suicide-related outcomes. Man, suicide-related outcomes, depressive symptoms, that seems dramatic, Daniel. But when you think about the time that you spend on screen, what you subject yourself to, the way that you can move into a spirit of discontentment, a spirit of, I wish I had that, but God hasn't given me that, so he's not good and I'm not good enough. We see that these things sink in deep. And we're all a part of this. Every one of you probably has a TV in their house. If you don't have a TV in your house, you probably have some form of social media. None of us live in a world where we're not subjected to screens and screen-related activities. I'd be happy to show you uh, the full part of this, uh, this syllabus that I read and uh, some of the research that was found was just fascinating. Uh, they experimented like this. They had uh, two categories of people. 
one that said, use your phone however you want to, be on social media, do whatever you want. And another group that they limited to 30 minutes a day. And at the end result, it's fascinating, the people who uh, were limited to 30 minutes a day, their levels of FOMO, anxiety, depressive symptoms were all lowered from the point where they entered in originally. But here's what's the most fascinating to me. Every single participant went down in those uh, metrics. They were all less depressed. They were all less sad. They were all more joyful. They felt less socially anxious. Just by being cognizant, just by knowing that they were going to be looked at for their engagement in social media. The mindfulness of what screens did to them set them free. And that's what I'd want for you. What I'm trying to hold up in my own life as I sit here on a chair and preach to myself, that this very mindfulness of what screens can do to us sets us free. Whether or not you go out and implement any drastic changes in your life. These things are wired to come at us. There's a quote that's unbelievably concerning from a social media giant, a guy named uh, Kamath Palapatia. Sorry if I butchered your name. He worked for Facebook at its advent in 2012, and this is what he said. The tools that we've created today are starting to erode the social fabric of how society works. The social fabric, the way that we interact with each other, the way that we feel about ourselves, these tools have been created They have been created to do these very things. He goes on and says this, that social media exploits our own natural tendencies and human beings to want and get feedback. Social media exploits our own natural tendencies. What God has put inside of us, the good thing he's put inside of us to get and want feedback. Social media exploits those things. And you know that that's true inside of people for all of time, we've wanted to have uh, ways to measure ourselves against people. The first thing that you usually ask when you meet someone is what they do for work. And work is good. God created work, but subconsciously in us sometimes, it can be this competition to see if they do a type of work that we would approve of or a type of work that we're interested in or a type of work that we would deem worthy. We ask people, Uh, Often where they live, because we want to know what kind of house they live in. We want to know how much money they spend on it. We ask each other all types of questions uh, that we use in a way to keep score in a way. Subconsciously, we want to posture ourselves as better, greater, more significant, more free, more fun. Whatever it is, you keep score inside your mind to justify yourself. We all do it. We all do it. I know I'm so guilty of it. And here's what social media has done. Here's what TV has done. What devices have done. They've given us a new way to keep score. We have likes and followers and shares. We share in stories and posts. We have all these ways that we can now keep score and display our greatest achievements in front of the world. And it creates for us this comparison game. And we know that comparison, uh, like the president Teddy Roosevelt said, is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. Now that almost sounds biblical. Many of you might've thought that that was a proverb before I said that Teddy said it. But he wrote that over a hundred years ago. And we live in a world where every time you turn something on, you are set up to compare yourself against someone else. That can lead us to a place of depression and discontentment. And that manifests itself most often in two ways. Comparison can lead to these feelings of depression, which lead us to resentment. Think about that. Comparison, when we see someone else on TV, when we see someone else on social media, that makes us feel depressed. Ah, man, I'm not where they are. I wish I could do that. I wish I had enough money for that. I wish I had enough time off work for that. I wish I had the family that could do that kind of thing. Comparison leads us to feelings of depression. And then that leads us to a place of resentment, right? Where we secretly hate them because of who they are. We secretly hate them because they're doing a fun thing and we're not doing it. We are all so guilty of this. We see what we believe would be the ideal. And when we can't get it, 
we have a spirit of bitterness inside of us, which God calls us away from. And the second way that comparison runs down, comparison, it leads to feelings of competition, right? Oh, well, if they're out there doing that, then I'm going to go and I'm going to do this. Uh, If they're out there uh, having fun on their vacation, I'm going to go on a better vacation and I'm going to show them. Comparison leads to these feelings of competition. And then from that flows this performance out of a need for approval. We would perform and do things in a way where we would say, ah, if only they could see me or I'll show them. We perform in a public way out of a sense, a need for approval. But the freedom of the gospel, what I want to point you today is that as Christians, we only compare ourselves to Jesus. As Christians, we only compare ourselves to Jesus. He is our standard. He is our one true judge. He is our righteousness. It's Satan's dream that we would be so focused on other people and other things that we would miss this reality. That because of the blood of Jesus, because of his perfect sacrifice, God looks at us as righteous. God looks at us as good. God looks at us as perfect. Not because we're any of those things on our own, but because Jesus' sacrifice has blessed us, where we've taken on what he deserved when he took on what we deserved. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians, in 10, verse 10, uh, sorry, chapter 10. It's a really interesting passage where Paul is sort of, uh, as the kids would say, put on blast by the way that these super apostles in Corinth, these false teachers in Corinth that were teaching uh, additional knowledge that you had to have Jesus plus some other things. They said that Paul wasn't flashy enough as a personality or good enough as a teacher. Paul defends himself to this church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10. And he says this, uh, not that we, that's Paul and the other apostles, uh, the people who ran with him and were responsible for so much of the Bible that we have now, It's not that we would dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So Paul would say, look, here's the deal. When people measure themselves against people, that's not the standard. When people measure themselves against people, that's never going to prove good enough because there's always someone out there who's doing something you're not. Always someone out there who's got the job you want. Always someone out there that has the family you wish that you had. So we grow to resent God because he hasn't given us this perfect life that we have when so much of the way that our life turns out is our responsibility. God's given us freedom to be faithful, to sow spiritual things in that we would receive an earthly blessing and an eternal blessing that we're called to be faithful and God's gonna be faithful to us. But that standard also doesn't factor in human failure. Uh, So often when people say, I hate God, God's let me down. What they really mean is people have disappointed me. And I say that God has disappointed me because that's easier for me to stomach. We want God to control the circumstances of our life like some puppet master. But he's given us freedom. And in that freedom, we so often hold ourselves up incorrectly in a comparison game to other people. And Paul writes here so beautifully that those people who do that are without understanding. They just don't get it. Paul goes on to say in 18 that it's not the person who commends himself. It's not the person who is flashy and says, yep, I'm good, me, this is it. It's not the person who commends himself who's approved, but it is the one whom the Lord commends. That's it. That's it, friends. If God has commended you, if he says, you're good enough, you're my son, you're my daughter, You're a co-heir with me. I've secured for you blessings in the heavenly places. If we've been made new in Jesus, that is all the condemnation we need. Sorry, commendation that we need because that's all the commendation that matters. We're out here hunting for approval. We want it so desperately. We live our lives to make people love us when we have been blessed far above all that we could ask or imagine. We have the favor of God. 
We have the love of God, which has been poured into our hearts. He's poured his love into our hearts. We've been made new, and he's transforming us. That affirmation is all that we need. So as we try to live our lives in a way that is flashy and showy, uh, so often that dishonors what God has done in us. He wants us to be content people. I think about 1 Timothy 6, 6, that uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. That we're called to be godly, to love him, to follow him in all of our ways, and to be content that that's enough. That that is great gain in this world that wants to gain so much. There's a commercial on TV that I love right now. Uh, Travelocity has branded this guy Captain Obvious. And uh, it's a hilarious character uh, because he says things that uh, I think behind me, you'll see a a penny saved is a penny saved. Uh, You're only going to get wisdom like that here at Fondren Church and only from a guy like me. But this Captain Obvious character, uh, the thing that he says most prominently in all of his commercials is, don't hate like their trip, plan your own. And Travelocity has captured the spirit that's inside all of us on these devices. We see what someone else is doing. We wish that we were there and we grow discontent and depressed inside of ourselves. We say, ah, they don't deserve that. I deserve that. They shouldn't be there. I should be here. Look at them trying to show off like everything's perfect. Because we know this about social media. We know this about TV. We get a highlight reel. We get these uh, perfect worlds. And even if you're uh, you know, someone who watches something like The Bachelor, uh, you know that in the end, it turns out good or good enough. The way that everything on a device is structured is to give us this illusion that uh, your life would be great if you just had this. But I'm convinced that for us as people, we're not just the ones who see that and are hurt by that, But we're often the very people that go out and cause people to sin by presenting ourselves in a way that creates insecurity. And that's not from the Lord. I'm convinced that it is sin. I'm convinced that it is sin to provoke someone to insecurity and to bitterness. Now, you might come at me and say, Daniel, all I'm doing is trying to Tell my mom and my grandma where I am on vacation. All I'm trying to do is be proud of my people. And I think that there are great ways for us to use social media to do some of those things. I think that things that deserve to be celebrated deserve to be celebrated. I've seen lots of people honor God in the way that they present themselves online. But I've also seen so many people intentionally posture themselves because they want to twist the knife in to someone that they know. And that spirit is not from the Lord. Again, I'm not asking you to be a monk. I'm not asking you to be reclusive. I'm not asking you to give up social media. I'd encourage you to look me up and I see the ways that I've failed at this. But as I've read more and more and as I've I've, uh, pastorally counseled, met with people more and more, I see the way that this oversharing and this intentional posturing, this whitewashing, this highlight reeling that we do as people so often causes our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ to grow bitter and insecure. Now, this premise, uh, this idea that I'm grabbing is is not an extra biblical idea. I think it's highly biblical. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul writes about food that's sacrificed to idols. And uh, the thing about food sacrificed to idols is that it in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Now, it's food that was committed to a false god, uh, but Paul gives freedom to some that they could eat that uh, in clean conscience if they don't feel convicted of that. But this is what he says uh, in 1 Corinthians 8, 12 and 13. He says that by eating these, this food sacrificed to idols, you're doing this, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. So when we would do something that would hurt someone whose conscience is weak, someone who might be offended by something that we do. Now, 
I know I feel your defenses rising. Uh, I'm not saying this is a world where uh, we need to create safe spaces necessarily and uh, save people that are snowflakes. But if we're Christians, we need to posture ourselves in a humble way that blesses people. We want to be a blessing and not a curse in the life of our community. So when we sin against these people, it's wounding their conscience, which means that we are against Christ. So Paul says this, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I'm challenging myself, and I want to pastorally challenge you today to think before you post, think before you share, think before you like. We want to be people who are gracious. We want to be people who are loving. And when we boast, we want to boast in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10, 17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Man, we want to be people who are gracious and complimentary. We want to encourage and bless. And we can do that online. It gives us an opportunity to be in other places and to serve people in a great way, to encourage people to be more like Jesus and less selfish. And we can do that with the way that we use our phones. I am convinced of it because I have seen it and I am struggling myself to try more and more. We know that Satan would love for us to feel insecure. He would love for us to grow in this FOMO that we all have. He would love to prove uh, his plan successful, that we would hate God, grow resentful, discontent, and depressed because of the things that we don't have. And that's such a slow, creeping work. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour, who roams the earth. He is someone who schemes. He is an accuser. He is a thief who's come to steal and kill and destroy. And when these things seep in, they seep in slowly. At the start of this year, uh, there was something on the news that really hit me. Uh, there's a picture that'll come up on the screen here. It's a boat. It's the Scandies Rose. Weird name, but a boat called the Scandies Rose. And uh, here's what happened. This is a boat that was featured on um, The Deadliest Catch. If you were into that show on Discovery Channel, uh, this is a uh, Captain Gribble, one of the big characters there. And on New Year's Eve, he and seven other people were on board uh, this boat right outside of one of the shores in Alaska where they uh, go out and catch these snow crabs. Uh, it's crazy. You know, these people make a lot of money and they risk their life so that you and I can eat some crab legs at Golden Corral. But these people uh, were on board this ship and they were probably engaging in some New Year's Eve libations. And as they went to sleep, the boat began to sink. And uh, Captain Gribble says that they went from sleeping to swimming in 10 minutes. It came quickly. But what they found out later is that there was a hole in the side of the boat. And it was slowly taking on water until it pulled them under. And the captain was one of... Uh, two of seven survivors at the end of this. And the way that we engage in our phones is just like this. The way that we engage in our devices is just like this. We are, we are being lulled to sleep. We are being convinced that what we have is not good enough. And it creates in us this spirit of insecurity. Just like a ship that has a little crack in it that's then pulled underwater, the way that we let Satan in. Man, it is slow and creeping and sinking. He creates in us this spirit of insecurity. And here's what I want for you today. Here's what I pray for myself. That we wouldn't be lulled into this false sense of security, but that we would find our true security in Jesus Christ. That we wouldn't be lulled into this false sense of security, but that we would find our security in Jesus Christ. He is the one who commends us. He is the one who blesses us. He is the one who's given us favor. He saved us. 
He saved us from so much, but he saved us for so much. So when we slip up, when we let Satan put his hooks in, we are off of what God wants us to do. He wants us to be people who know him deeply and honor him deeply. And these devices seem like a blessing, but they can so often be a curse. Friends, I pray that you would be a good steward of your screens, that it wouldn't be something that leads you to discontentment, that it wouldn't be something that leads you to depression, but that you would use these things in a way that would help you be connected to the world, would help you grow in your faith, would help you serve and bless. And that those spirits of insecurity would be far, far from you. When we remember that the one whom the Lord has commended is indeed commended. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're so thankful for you. I'm thankful for these friends, Lord, all around the world today. God, that we can gather as your church because of technology. And God, I'd ask that you'd bless us in the way that we seek to honor you as we use these devices. God, we wanna be people who are good stewards. We want insecurity to be far from us. Lord, you've given us the ultimate security. We know that once we're yours, that nothing can snatch us out of your hand. Lord, I just ask that depression and discontentment would be far from us. God, that we would be heads up about the way that we use these things. God, that you'd lead us in this as an area of growth. And Lord, I ask that uh, as each one of us seeks to honor you, God, that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd give us discernment. Lord, that we would see our security in you, not in how we posture ourselves online, not in what we know or what we access, but God, just in you, that you commend us and that's enough. God, I ask you to give us freedom from all those things, to see security in you. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.